everybody. Welcome back at long last to What Happened to Syria. Yes, we're back. This is, again, a podcast about the country, Syria, the people from Syria, and their impact on the wider world since 2011. All right, so you have every right to be wondering, where the hell has this podcast been? We've put out, like, one episode this entire year back in April. And that was a very special interview we did with a gentleman named Bernd Debusmund. The man's a legendary war correspondent, and getting to talk to him about his reporting in Lebanon during their civil war, and how it led to him reporting on events in Syria, like the Hama massacre, that was kind of an impromptu thing. We couldn't miss the opportunity, and that's honestly one of my proudest accomplishments this entire year. This year was very different from the one before. 2021, this podcast was basically if not my top focus, at least one of the top five priorities in my life. But then late that year, my mom almost died. She got really sick in November 2021. And at one point, it looked like she wasn't going to make it. She ended up on a ventilator in the ICU. And it was so bad that at the time, the hospital had these rules about how many visitors could show up. It was usually only one visitor per day was allowed to see each patient in the ICU just trying to keep COVID under control. And it was spiking at the time. My mom, her condition got so bad that the doctors were literally bending hospital rules to let both myself and my stepfather go visit her. That's how bad it was. They thought this is going to be your last chance to say goodbye. It didn't turn out that way. It was like almost all the doctors said, she's not going to make it. And then there was like one random doctor who was like, she'll survive, but it's going to take at least a year for her to recover fully. That one outlier ended up being the doctor who was correct. My mom did make a full recovery, close to a full recovery at least, but it took a very long time. She spent three months in the hospital, not the whole time in the ICU. It was about Thanksgiving to Christmas that she spent in the intensive care unit. November to December, and then she spent the following middle of December to, you're not going to believe this. So she actually got out of the hospital on February 14th of all days, Valentine's Day. So she was in the hospital from roughly around November 13th, 2021 to February 14th, Valentine's Day of this year, 2022. And I made some content while she was in the hospital, but it's twofold. First, it was hard to focus while constantly distracted by the thought of, at any moment, I might get a phone call and learn that my mother has passed away. There was that. And there was also just, I was already burned out before my mom got sick. I burned myself out trying to make this podcast get off the ground, trying to make content every week, trying to put out a new episode every week, plus a bonus episode, that in particular, just trying to do a full episode, plus a bonus episode, once a week, every week, week after week after week after week, and after about a year, I just couldn't do it anymore. Then my mom got sick. Then she came back home, and I found myself spending a lot of time as a caregiver for her. For the first few months she was back home, her mobility was very limited. She was unable to do the vast majority of things a functional adult can do. So I had a lot less time in this year. And then when she started getting better, I got a full-time job. I had been working part-time when I started this podcast. I was basically self-employed when I started this podcast. Wasn't making much money, but I was technically my own boss. Then I got kind of a real job 
it's like half remote work, half going into the office. So yeah, it's still the kind of laid back thing that most podcasters prefer. And it does give me more time for stuff like this than a lot of other jobs would, but it's still took up a lot of time and energy. So that new job, plus helping take care of my mom as she slowly but surely recovered from that very near-death experience, I didn't really have the time or energy to put anything out. I did try to record something. I did try to record what's going to end up being the season finale for this podcast, the first one. That project in particular, I'll go more into detail about that in a minute. I kind of wasn't ready to record it, so it was kind of a blessing in disguise, because like I tried to go up the same breakneck pace I'd been going at for the other episodes. But for this one in particular, it was so different and the research was so dense and esoteric that when I started recording, I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. And it took the better part of a year for me to really gain the understanding that I need to. I still haven't even finished recording that episode, so I could be wrong, but that's my hope at least. So I spent a lot of this year, 2022, just kind of like feeling sorry for myself. I felt guilty about not putting out as much content as I did the year before. And as the year went on, I was like, oh, it's been months and I haven't put anything out. And then finally, somewhere around October or November, my thinking changed. I started realizing, you know what? I'm not getting anything done beating myself up over how little I've done this year. I'm going to start focusing on next year. I'm going to start focusing on making a comeback, plan out future episodes, finish season one of this show, and then finally get around to season two at long last. Now, just what do I mean season one and season two? Okay, so when I say season finale, that does not mean that the show is ending forever. That doesn't mean that the podcast is going away forever. Although I understand if you got that impression by the fact that we basically pod faded earlier this year. So I'm going to have to describe to you my original plan and then why it didn't work. My original plan was that season one or series one or book one, whatever you want to call it, it was going to focus on 2011 in Syria. Season two would focus on 2012, so on and so forth. That was my original idea. But as I did the show, as I described the Syrian revolution and how it unfolded, I realized that, you know, that arbitrary designation of season one, 2011, season two, 2012... That's just not how real life works. You know, if we began season two in January 2012 and ended season two in covering December of that year, that's not really the beginning, middle, and end of a story. That's like the middle of it. So instead, I've decided going forward that the different seasons of the show will follow different phases of the Syrian revolution and the concurrent Syrian civil war. Specifically, season one has ended up being about the revolution, about how did opposition build up in Syria, and why did protests break out in 2011, and ultimately, how did the Assad regime respond to those protests. So there are two more episodes we need to put out of season one before we finally move on to season two. Those episodes are going to focus on the zenith of the Syrian revolution. I'm talking about the time when people like Ibrahim Kashush are basically giving impromptu concerts to hundreds of people protesting in places like Homs and Hama, when people like Abdul Basit al-Sarut are first becoming famous. So that's going to be episode 15. Episode 16 is going to be another biographical episode. We're going to pick back up where the Assad family and regime part one left off. I felt the need to do this because in order to understand season two, 
which will in large part tell the story of how the Assad regime attempted to squelch the Syrian revolution, arguably by starting the Syrian civil war. In order to understand why the Assad regime did what it did in 2011-2012, we need to look at things like the Hama massacre. So I planned out the Assad family and regime part two, 1970 to 1982, exactly for that purpose. Episode 15 and season finale, they're both going to be super long, really, really long, like several hours. We're going to break up both of them into smaller episodes. We're going to put them out as like 15A, 15B, 16A, 16B. Eventually, we will put out the full length episodes if you're the kind of freak like me who prefers to listen to like three hour podcasts in full. So yeah, season one will, some would say, end in mid-2011. If you want to be super literal about it, it's going to end in February 1982. And if you're familiar with Syrian history, or at least the Hama massacre, you will get what I'm referencing. It shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone that this show is going to get really, really gruesome in future episodes. I mean, we have gotten gruesome. We've described things like 13-year-old boy Hamza Ali al-Khatib being tortured to death and then mutilated either posthumously or while still alive before his mutilated remains were dumped at his family's house. I mean, that was a horrible, horrible thing to describe. You can hear it in my voice in that episode how much it affected me. So I take no pleasure telling you this, but it's going to get worse. You know, in 2011, what happened to Hamza Ali al-Khatib was unique. By 2012, it's no longer even considered newsworthy. That's how many children have experienced the horrible, painful, agonizing death that Hamza did. So while season one focuses on the Syrian revolution, season two is going to focus primarily on Assad's counter-revolution, as well as things like the formation of the armed opposition and how they came really close to toppling Assad, but ultimately didn't. We're going to go into all that stuff, plus more, including the most contentious topic probably among anti-Assad people, the YPG and the role that they've played. Whose side are they on? Depends on who you ask. That's going to be a can of worms that I'm dreading, but we are going to have to go into it because, my God, it is one of the most heavily propagandized and just, frankly, confusing topics related to the broader topic of Syria and the Syrian civil war. I mean, I can't think of a single issue that divides anti-Assad people more than are the YPG pro-Assad or anti-Assad or just neutral. I cannot describe to you how easy it is to see arguments break out over this topic. So we are going to have to cover it. We're going to do the best we can to look at it even-handedly and give you the facts without giving into bias from one side or another. housekeeping out of the way and explaining my very long absence with that done we can now move on to the very main event now we continue the christmas tradition we began last year of focusing on refugees this time i want to start us off focusing on syrian refugees and then zoom out a little bit to look at refugees from some other parts of the world 
and examine what have they gone through this year, 2022. This has been a really, really big year in terms of internal and external displacement of people. Like, I know you probably hear me and other podcasters say that a lot. This has been a really big, important year. But for real, what has happened this year in terms of refugees, it is going to end up in the history books. So this episode is already about half done. We're going to spend about the next quarter looking at how the Syrian refugee crisis unfolded from 2011 to 2012. And then we're going to fast forward to 2022, looking at refugees from Syria and some other very unfortunate countries. I don't know what else to call them. I mean, these are these are countries where a lot of bad things are happening and a lot of people are leaving or are internally displaced for, if not good reason, at least unavoidable reasons. Like, they can't stay, period. Now, that right there is something that pretty much every Syrian can understand, at least. I mean, yeah, you've got the pro-regime people who stayed and they see the refugees and opposition Syrians as traitors, but whatever. So now we pick back up at the Syrian refugee crisis in 2011. We left off with tens of thousands of Syrians forced to flee from the country by mid-2011. That's pretty early on. This is just a few months after the protests started. This is immediately after Dara and other cities have been put under siege by the Assad regime. I'm not going to go into too much detail about why Syrians were prompted to flee the country in the first place. We go into a lot more detail about that in other episodes. What I want to point out right now is how the number of people willing to leave their homes and give up all their belongings simply to flee for their lives escalated sharply throughout 2012 and what that can tell us about how violence intensified in that span of time. So, in mid-2011, around 10,000 to 20,000 Syrians have fled the country. So, Within one year after the Syrian revolution, the number of people who have fled from Syria has escalated from the initial 10 to 20,000, mid-2011, go forward less than a year later, April 2012, that number has gone up to 55,000, if not 75,000 people. 55,000 to 75,000 refugees fleeing to Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, and other countries. In this same span of time, we also see 200,000 Syrian people internally displaced. Again, to be clear, there's a difference between internally displaced versus refugees. Refugees are externally displaced. Refugees have to flee from one country to another. Internally displaced people, or IDPs, they're kind of like refugees, except they either don't have to leave the country or they can't even if they want to. They just don't have the means to get out of the country, so they're oftentimes stuck in a, what people call an IDP camp, somewhere in the country, usually often very far from where they were born. Now, in early 2011, you had mostly peaceful protests throughout the country, as well as isolated instances of large-scale military activity directed at protesting civilians. It was more often the police or secret police who were directed to shoot at protesters rather than conscripted soldiers because, as we see in other episodes and in future episodes coming soon, those soldiers had a tendency to defect to the opposition side. A lot of the early armed opposition were made up of those defectors, as well as locals who picked up guns to protect their neighborhoods from being raped and pillaged and mass-murdered. 
what we see from late 2011 to early 2012, we see the isolated instances of the military being directed against Syria's civilian population. We see those sporadic instances become the norm throughout the country. So when it's no longer just Dara under siege, when it becomes almost the entire country under siege, when almost every major city looks like Dara in mid-2011, when you have places like Homs being sealed off and bombed, not just Homs, I mean, there's cities all over Syria that are getting that. And that's on top of the Shabiha-led and coordinated massacres in multiple cities. These massacres... They really set the tone for the conflict to come. You'll sometimes see people on the internet using slurs to describe the opposition, especially the armed opposition. You'll often hear a phrase, head chopper, being thrown around by, I'll just say it, assholes who for some reason wish to defend the Assad regime and their actions. If you ever see the word head chopper being used, keep in mind that the very first beheadings to take place in this conflict were done by the pro-regime side when they slaughtered entire neighborhoods that had shown support for the opposition. I'm talking about massacres like the Hula Massacre, the Daraya Massacre, and a whole bunch of other ones that happened throughout 2012 that didn't really get much attention from the outside world. Some of the big ones, especially the ones that where a lot of media activists were able to cover them, there were some isolated examples where these horrible, horrible massacres got attention from the outside world, but the vast majority of them didn't. Hula was not a one-off. Daraya was not a one-off. This was essentially a campaign of massacres across the country, the goal of which being to eradicate the Syrian opposition. This was a genocidal campaign waged by Bashar al-Assad against anyone who openly opposed him. However, it should also be noted that he largely spared the more unsavory elements of the Syrian opposition. Those were more like hardline Islamist, if not full-blown extremist jihadis. He mostly spared those and prioritized eradicating people like Razan Zaituna, eradicating organizations like the local coordination committees. Essentially, Assad wanted to contaminate the Syrian opposition so that outside powers would look at what's going on and think, Ooh, I don't like Assad, but yeah, those rebels are scary looking too. Like they do this and they do that. Like, oh, Assad's bad, but these guys are also bad. Okay, that false equivalence is by design. That false equivalence comes from the Assad regime prioritizing the eradication of rebels and other opposition supporters who didn't meet the stereotype that you see in Assadist propaganda. They wanted to portray the Syrian opposition, whether armed or unarmed, as being all a bunch of bearded religious fanatics. They're all violent. They're all super bloodthirsty. They portrayed the Syrian opposition as being a jihadist movement made up of people who treat women like property and who wish to exterminate all non-Sunni Muslims in Syria. Now, if we're talking about 2011 to 2012 specifically, I'd venture to say that maybe 1% of even the armed opposition met that description. As a result, anyone who was part of the opposition, whether armed or just an unarmed opposition activist, anyone who didn't fit the Assad regime stereotypes for the opposition was immediately targeted to be either disappeared or killed or what have you, just eliminated somehow, because that person's existence was a direct threat to the regime because of how it contradicted their narrative of what was going on. 
I'm talking about people like, again, Razan Zaituna or Yassin Al-Haj Saleh or Mazen Darvish or Samira Khalil and even people like Salih Muslim and Hevran Khalif among the Syrian Kurds. Those people are all a hell of a lot more sympathetic than a totalitarian dictator with 16 different secret police agencies serving at his beck and call to torture and murder and otherwise brutalize people who dissent against them. The regime got around this by claiming they were fighting against the equivalent of Osama bin Laden, and anyone in the opposition who didn't meet that description were basically priority number one to be killed, or at least forced to flee the country. That right there is one of many reasons why the likes of al-Nusra Front, Jaish al-Islam, and, yes, ISIS, emerged as such powerful players in the subsequent Syrian civil war. In 2011 to 2012, the number of people who realized, oh my god, we need to leave the country or else the regime is going to come here and not only kill me, but kill the entire family because that's what the regime does, the number of people who came to that conclusion and decided to flee the country escalated sharply throughout 2011 to 2012, and then continuing into 2012. Okay, so some context here. Midway through 2012, there were attempts made in part by the United Nations and other international bodies to help the Assad regime and the Syrian opposition come to some kind of ceasefire. By June of 2012, it was clear that wasn't going to work, so the regime instead doubled down on genocide. In April 2012, you had about 55 to 75,000 Syrians fleeing the country to Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, and other countries, along with 200,000 Syrian people internally displaced. That was April of 2012. By the end of that year, the number of Syrians who had fled the country had shot up to 110,000. Oh, wait, I screwed up. That was just the number that escalated between April to, like, June or July, around the time the ceasefire failed. So, okay, it was 55,000 to 75,000 Syrian refugees fleeing the country by April 2012, 110,000 by the middle of 2012, and by December of that year, the number of refugees fleeing from Syria to other countries had gone up to 750,000. 55,000 to 75,000 at the start of the year, 110,000 by the middle of the year, 750,000 forced to flee their country of origin because of the actions of the Assad regime. And before somebody starts talking about the rebels and the armed opposition, yes, they were there. Yes, some of them did some bad things. But at that point, they were nowhere near the kind of threat to ordinary civilians that the Assad regime posed. 110,000 to 750,000 in the span of a few months. That's how much the Syrian refugee crisis expanded in just a few months of 2012, which would naturally lead most people to conclude, damn, something terrible must have been going on in that span of time. Indeed, it was a campaign of genocidal massacres across the country, which at that point had become an everyday occurrence. We will go over these massacres in horrible, gruesome, graphic detail in future episodes. It's going to be like the bulk of season two, unfortunately. But now let's fast forward to today and look at refugees from Syria, as well as those from other countries. For a long time, Syrians made up a majority of the world's refugees. That's not quite the case anymore. 
but they're still up there. They're still at least the third largest nationality among the highest quote-unquote refugee-producing nations. Today, the number of Syrian refugees across the world stands at around 6.8 million people, while another 6.9 people in the country remain internally displaced. This means that more than 13 million people from Syria, which is about half the country's population, they've all lost their homes since 2011, and they've either been forced to flee the country or to flee from one part of the country to another. The vast majority of the Syrian refugees today are located in Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan, with smaller numbers of them seeking refuge in Iraq, Egypt, and European Union member states. This latter destination entails paying some untrustworthy smugglers in Turkey or Libya to smuggle you across the Mediterranean Sea on an old rickety boat. The first known instance of this occurring actually happened in August 2012, I've got a Reuters article in front of me describing this. Quote, A fishing boat carrying 157 people, including 124 Syrians fleeing from escalating violence in their country, was intercepted close to the southern Italian coast and towed to the port of Crotone late on Wednesday, August 8th. Also on board were 30 Afghans and three Turkish citizens, two of whom were arrested on suspicion of people smuggling. All were in good health and were transferred on Thursday to an immigration center in the nearby Calabrian city of Isola Caporizzuto, unquote. Yeah, I don't speak any Italian. So, ignoring the fact that I just butchered a bunch of place names, that described the first known instance of Syrians crossing the Mediterranean Sea by boat to escape both the violence in their country as well as the really squalid conditions that Syrian refugees faced in places like Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan. To this day, Syrian refugees across the world oftentimes have very limited prospects. They often face discrimination in the job market, and many of them are just very, very poor. This issue has only gotten worse over time, and it is continuing to get worse. So these circumstances have led a lot of people to become desperate enough to literally risk their lives to start a new life somewhere else. You know, because like that article I just quoted, it mentioned the first known instance of a boat full of those people arriving in Europe where those people showed up alive. In the years since, there have been many more instances where that was not the case, where the boat capsized, where people, including men, women, and children, have drowned in the Mediterranean Sea in the hundreds, if not thousands, of people from Syria and other countries racked by warfare and oppressive governments. Thousands of these people have drowned in the Mediterranean Sea over the last 10 years trying to reach Europe. And the arrival of those who managed to survive the journey has proven beyond a doubt that Europe is indeed about as racist today as it's always been. For so long, you had all these smug Europeans who were like, oh, look how multicultural we am. We are so much better on race relations in the United States. Look how racist those Americans are. Like, they act like that. And then one day, they're watching TV, and they see news footage of Syrians and Afghans and others arriving by boat, and they just lose their damn minds. Ah, oh my God, people who are different from us are coming here. Ah, oh my God, we have to vote for the far right. We have to vote for the fascists. Please, UKIP, AFD, National Front, save us from the refugee scourge. 
assholes. That's what hypocrisy looks like. If you see someone look at thousands of desperate people showing up with nothing but the clothes on their back, basically begging you to give them any job, any job, even the jobs you don't want, they're willing to do whatever it takes to earn a living in your country. If you look at these desperate people showing up with nothing but the clothes on their back, and your immediate response is to label them invaders. I don't know what else to say. That's pretty fucking racist. So on top of the 6.8 million people dealing with the stuff that I just described, you also have a further 6.9 people in Syria who are still internally displaced. Now, most internally displaced Syrians tend to reside in IDP camps located across northern Syria. And this ranges from territory in Idlib province held by Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, or HTS, We do not have time to go into what they are and what they're about. There are also many IDP camps in territory held by the Turkish military and allied Syrian militias on their payroll. Those militias are commonly known as the Syrian National Army or the TFSA. Again, don't have time to go into what they are and what they're about. Lastly, you also have a lot of IDP camps located in territory held by the United States military and their allied Syrian militias are commonly known as the Syrian Democratic Forces or the SDF. Once again, don't really have time to go into who they are, what they're about, and how do they differ from the other ones I just mentioned. That will all be revealed in future episodes. The important point is that a majority of these internally displaced people in Syria live in areas outside of the Assad regime's control. Very few refugees or IDPs have willingly returned to territory held by Bashar al-Assad's government, although a small number have been forcefully returned to that place, which is a violation of international law. This has been perpetrated by Denmark, Turkey, Lebanon, and several other countries. And yeah, yeah, you're not getting spared, Denmark. Sure, you only did that a little bit. You didn't do it as much as Turkey. Whatever. You still did what you did. And I'm pissed about this because a lot of these refouled refugees, that's the legal term for it, refoulement is a violation of international law, but lots of people do it anyway. Several of these refouled refugees who are sent back to Damascus of all places, a lot of these refouled refugees immediately found themselves being arrested and sent to prisons where they were sometimes literally raped or tortured to death. For more on this horrible subject matter, I direct you to an Amnesty International report titled, You're Going to Your Death. Now, sadly, Syria is not the only country suffering from a refugee crisis. There are some others we should mention, and especially in the last year, things have gotten a lot worse for a couple of them. Next, we turn to Afghanistan. This place just hasn't been able to catch a break for decades. Afghanistan's been one of the largest refugee-producing countries in the world since a Soviet invasion in 1979. During the Soviet-Afghan War, a majority of the world's refugees came from Afghanistan, at least two million of them, the vast majority of whom ended up residing in Pakistan or Iran. Some of these people returned after the Soviets withdrew from the country, only to flee once again during the subsequent Mujahideen civil war. Others escaped in 1996 when the Taliban took over the country, some of whom returned after the United States invaded Afghanistan in 2001, assuming that the Taliban were not going to return. In the summer of 2021, the Taliban very quickly, and to a lot of people very surprisingly, 
took back swaths of the country as the U.S.-led coalition gradually withdrew their military forces. This prompted yet another wave of emigration from Afghanistan. At the time of this recording, more than 2.2 million Afghan citizens have been documented fleeing abroad, and another 3.5 million have been internally displaced by ongoing conflicts and natural disasters taking place within the country. Before we move on, we really need to say a few words about what happened in August 2021, especially at the Hamid Karzai International Airport, or HKIA, in Kabul. By then, the Taliban had taken over almost all of the country, including all of the border crossings. So everybody all over Afghanistan who didn't want to live under the Taliban, whether they had previously had bad experiences with them, or maybe they were women who had undergone education and didn't want to live in the kind of system that, that the Taliban would impose, or maybe for whatever reason, just their very existence violated the draconian laws that the Taliban enforce if you could even call them laws. And yeah, sure, supporters of the Taliban will hem and haw that these are a minority of the population of Afghanistan. But nonetheless, whether or not these people made up a majority or minority, there were soon thousands of people fleeing to Kabul, the capital city, basically the last island of non-Taliban rule left in Afghanistan before Kabul also fell. At this point, the airport in Kabul was the only non-Taliban controlled way out of the country. So all of them went there. I'd like to once again address one of the claims made by the obnoxious trolls online who went out of their way to denigrate and dehumanize the people who were trying to flee from Afghanistan at the time. Those same, whatever they are, whether they're bot accounts or paid trolls or what have you, probably all in Pakistan rather than in Afghanistan. They made claims like, oh, those people aren't really fleeing from the Taliban. They just heard rumors that everybody who shows up there will be allowed to go to America or wherever. Okay, if there is any truth to that, which I strongly doubt, I would not put it past the Taliban themselves to have made up that rumor and spread it among Afghans simply to cause as many problems as possible for the people overseeing the evacuations of Afghans. Because like every totalitarian regime, the Taliban have an incentive to prevent as many of their fellow citizens as possible from being able to leave the country. That being said, the Taliban do not bear sole responsibility for the lack of coordination and preparedness among the evacuation force. The shortest and simplest way I can describe this, if you will permit me, or at least forgive me for overgeneralizing here, someday I will make a podcast that goes really in-depth into this, but now is not that time. Broadly speaking, in the years leading up to the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the Trump administration essentially sabotaged programs like the Special Immigrant Visa Program. The SIV program was supposed to help Afghans who had worked with coalition troops, whether they be interpreters or Afghan National Army soldiers, anybody who worked closely with foreign troops deployed to Afghanistan, they were supposed to get first dibs on asylum. And on Trump's watch, the U.S. version of this turned into a complete and utter shit show. And then under Biden, we announced that we were leaving Afghanistan without having first addressed these problems. I don't know what exactly happened to the other countries, but I know for a fact that a lot of the European countries that were involved, they also had similar issues. Basically, you had a bunch of Afghans 
who were waiting for years to have their visas approved or to have their asylum claims approved. Just years and years and years. And if the people in the SIV program were falling through the cracks, you can be damn sure ordinary Afghans who were applying for asylum didn't stand a chance. So the number of Afghans being approved for asylum in other countries and being allowed to leave the country and and fly to other places, it was a trickle for years. And suddenly, all those people who had fallen through the cracks, the majority of people who were just waiting and waiting and waiting, in August 2021, they couldn't wait anymore. So they got their asses over to Kabul and did everything possible to get on a plane and get out of there. And that led to Hamid Karzai International Airport becoming the scene of a humanitarian catastrophe, a nightmare the likes of which even most soldiers had never seen before. Thousands and thousands of people, entire families upon entire families, suffering from starvation, exposure, and thirst. Anyone who happened to get sick or suffers from a chronic illness, the odds of them seeing a doctor were slim to none. We will probably never know exactly how many Afghans died at Hamid Karzai International Airport trying to leave the country, or more accurately, waiting to try to leave the country. We don't know what the exact death toll was, but we know for a fact that many of them, at over a hundred, were confirmed to have died, including children and infants. Many of these people were killed during a suicide bombing conducted by a local ISIS affiliate, but again, you also had starvation, exposure, thirst, and then there were even times where people, out of desperation, tried to throw their babies over to American and other coalition soldiers in the hopes that someone would catch the baby and maybe get them on a plane so at least maybe that that infant could have a better life somewhere else. But there were many cases where those thrown infants weren't caught and they instead landed on concertina wire. I'm not going to waste time describing what that is, but long story short, the babies who were thrown and weren't caught bled to death. I'm going to paraphrase now um, a famous American soldier named Tim Kennedy, who volunteered to fly over to Afghanistan and assist with the evacuation efforts. This might be paraphrasing, I can't find the exact soundbite, but what I vividly remember hearing him say was, quote, what I saw there was worse than war. And that's coming from a man with multiple combat deployments under his belt. Even battle-hardened veterans were horrified, absolutely stunned by the humanitarian catastrophe unfolding at Hamid Karzai International Airport in August 2021. And most of the U.S.-led coalition troops who were there, most of them weren't battle-hardened veterans. Most of them were on their very first deployment to Afghanistan, if not their very first deployment ever. These were not cold-blooded robots who treated life like it was cheap. These are people who were horrified by what they saw, and that will stick with them for the rest of their lives. I'm talking about people in their late teens and early 20s for the most part, who spent day after day after day watching Afghan men, women, and children suffer and in some cases die. If you, the listener, heard anything about this, you were probably watching the news and saw video of Afghans clinging onto airplanes, trying to somehow stay holding on to the plane while it flew away, only for their grips to eventually slip, and they fell to their deaths 
while people on the ground were filming what was happening. You probably have seen those videos. That is just a small, mild sample of the carnage that was going on at Hikaya. But for all the ugliness and the valid criticisms of the U.S.-led coalition, as bad as it is, there are points in this story where certain individuals did behave heroically. I'm talking about military personnel, government employees, and especially non-governmental organizations, especially those made up of veterans of the war in Afghanistan who wanted to save the Afghans they had served with and their families. After months, if not years, of failing to prepare for this moment, suddenly multiple ad hoc efforts by the U.S.-led coalition were initiated to get as many evacuees out of the country as possible. The U.S. and its allies flew an unbelievable number of aircraft to and from Afghanistan, loading these planes up with people who were lucky enough to make it through all that chaos and get processed for evacuation. Now, this was neither perfect nor foolproof. There were multiple times where Afghans who were vetted and approved didn't make it through. There were even some cases of U.S. citizens who ended up getting left behind. But nonetheless, somewhere around a dozen nation-states, including the United States, the United Kingdom, and even Ukraine, a whole bunch of countries sent a huge percentage of their air forces over to Afghanistan to fly people out of the country. They ended up rescuing more than 122,000 people. That is how crowded Hamid Karzai International Airport was with people trying to leave the country. They flew 122,000 people out in an incredibly short span of time. Seriously, go look up Kabul Airlift on Google Images. You will find these incredible pictures of these gigantic cargo planes. These are aircraft designed to carry armored vehicles and tanks, and the entire cargo bay is filled to the brim with hundreds of people, hundreds of Afghans and other citizens who wanted to escape from the Taliban. Just about every plane was packed like that. And you also had some complications here and there, like the occasional pregnant woman going into labor while the plane is in midair. But one of the major factors behind the successful evacuations that did occur, one of the major factors was the involvement of non-governmental organizations most of which were made up of veterans of the U.S.-led war in Afghanistan. A lot of these people were getting frantic phone calls, emails, text messages from Afghans they knew who were still living in Afghanistan, people who knew they would most likely be tortured or killed or both as soon as the Taliban found them and discovered their previous involvement with the Americans or the U.S.-backed Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. So a bunch of veterans in the United States and other countries that had participated in the U.S.-led coalition, they got together and started forming their own groups. This includes organizations like Task Force Pineapple and Save Our Allies, just to name two out of the many that immediately sprung up. They did a variety of different things. Some people made phone calls and answered the phone. Others actually traveled over to Afghanistan. People like Tim Kennedy, people actually went over there. Their intention from the beginning was to help assist the evacuations, but once they saw the full scale of the chaos going on, it was pretty clear that, number one, the people protecting the airport, they needed somebody who could go outside of the airport and pick people up who couldn't make it through Taliban checkpoints surrounding the airport. So you had Americans, 
Brits, Canadians, a whole bunch of different nationalities doing this super dangerous work of their own volition. They're not getting paid a cent for this. They're doing this because they believe it's the right thing to do. They risk their lives leaving the airport, going through Taliban checkpoints. There was this really weird situation there where the Taliban and the U.S.-led coalition kind of had a detente, basically. This was after the Doha agreement. So the Taliban were probably not going to shoot them, but they couldn't count on that. These are guys who had spent a good part of their military careers fighting the Taliban. If they get caught smuggling people into the airport, oh hell, that Doha agreement's going out the window. So these veteran NGOs played a major role bridging the huge gaps caused by government incompetence and ineptitude, if not downright disdain for Afghan people. I mean, honestly, so much of the initial evacuation efforts were such a disaster. Honestly, makes more sense to think that somebody made a plan to sabotage this process. That makes more sense than accepting the the presence of everyday incompetence, the buildup of one mistake after another, one unfinished task after another, and then suddenly, August 2021, shit hits the fan, it's time to throw your cards down on the table, and we kind of had nothing. So the veterans who volunteered for those NGOs and went above and beyond in helping Afghans flee the country, they deserve all the praise in the world. But the fact of the matter is, their participation, their heroic efforts, their sacrifices shouldn't have been necessary. This should have been the job of governments, not civilians. NGOs are good, it's great that they exist, but way too many governments use them to pick up the slack. So with all that, by August 30th, 2021, all foreign troops had withdrawn from Afghanistan, and Hkaya or Hamid Karzainer National Airport was closed. It was eventually reopened weeks later, under the new name of Kabul International Airport. Now, as I said at the beginning of this segment, 2.2 million Afghans have fled the country since then, and another 3.5 million remain internally displaced. Some of these Afghan refugees have been treated well in the places where they ended up, and some have not. Some have been treated pretty poorly by individuals or governments in the strange new lands where they find themselves trying to establish a new life. Some Afghan refugees are adapting pretty well, and they're moving on pretty quickly, getting integrated into their new countries. But some others, unfortunately, have not. This is undoubtedly exacerbated by things such as unresolved post-traumatic stress and other forms of psychological trauma. I mean, just think about all the horrors that I described in recounting the the Kabul airlift, which, by the way, I mean, the world had not seen something like the Kabul airlift since, say, the fall of South Vietnam. This is one of those once-every-few-times-per-century events. You've got all the nightmarish things that Afghans waiting at the airport were seeing and experiencing, and then you add in the 20 years of warfare that had occurred before, plus the other 20 or so years of warfare that had occurred before then, and Afghanistan, this country has not caught a break for the better part of four decades. It's no wonder that a lot of people from that country deal with things like post-traumatic stress. 
So that, my dear listeners, is where Afghan refugees today in December 2022 find themselves. The next place we're going to talk about is one that you've certainly heard of unless you've been, say, trapped in a dungeon, held incommunicado, or stuck on a deserted island, or been in a coma and only recently woke up. Barring those unusual circumstances, you have certainly heard that in February of this year, Russia invaded Ukraine. I don't have time to go into the history and the geopolitics of it all. It's not relevant to this episode. Right now, I want to focus on the humanitarian aspects of this ongoing major war. Since February of this year, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has prompted 7.9 million Ukrainians to flee the country, most of whom have ended up as refugees in Poland. Another 8 million people were internally displaced by the bombings and attempted annexations of Ukrainian territory. Now, I I know I've been throwing too many numbers at you this episode, so just to make it very clear what this means, 7.9 million Ukrainians fleeing their country. This means that a quarter of the Ukrainian population has had to flee their homes, a majority of whom are women and children. Correction, this means that a quarter of the Ukrainian population have either had to flee the country or at least flee from one part of Ukraine to another. 7.9 million refugees plus 8 million people internally displaced, that is a quarter of the entire Ukrainian population. And a majority of the people who have fled the country are women and children due to the emergency conscription laws banning most Ukrainian males over the age of 18 from leaving the country. Children in particular have been severely affected by this war and the subsequent refugee crisis. More than half of all Ukrainian kids have been displaced by the conflict. A quarter of them have been forced to flee the country with their mothers. There have also been videos taken of very small children, like toddler-aged kids, showing up at the Polish border by themselves. They just walked by themselves for an innumerable amount of hours in the cold. I am talking primarily about the early stages of the invasion, February to March. And these are kids who their parents just told them, keep walking. And for whatever reason, they either got separated or the parents got killed, whatever happened. And those kids just kept going. And they show up at the border. I remember one video. It was this little boy. I think he was probably like three years old, walking completely by himself in this long column of Ukrainian refugees walking to the Polish border, and this kid is just crying while walking. He is breaking down emotionally, but physically his body keeps going. That stuck with me. The Russian invasion of Ukraine created the largest refugee crisis seen in Europe since World War II, basically overnight. Some people listening to this might Google what I'm talking about, either during or after they've listened to this podcast, and they might see something that would surprise them. They might see claims that a majority of Ukrainian refugees have fled to Russia. A majority of them are currently living in Russia. Well, now it's time for us to do what we love to do on this podcast and call out some bullshit. Approximately 900,000 Ukrainians, possibly even more, possibly as high as like a million or more, have been moved to Russia. They were moved there for the most part, against their will. Russia calls these people refugees. 
Here's why that's a crock of shit. Okay, let me be clear. I'm not I'm not accusing the Ukrainians who got moved against their will of doing anything untoward, with the exception of a small number of them who were like pro-Russian saboteurs. But anyway, okay, just to be clear, I'm not I'm not blaming the Ukrainians here. The reason why I say it's bullshit that they're refugees, they were basically kidnapped. They're not refugees, they are abduction victims. Victims of the largest mass abduction to take place within our lifetimes. You see, when Russia invaded Ukraine and occupied swaths of the country, most of which the Ukrainians have since taken back through blood, sweat, and sacrifice, in places like Kherson, a lot of people looked at what was going on and decided they wanted to get the hell out of Dodge, whether it was because they were afraid of what the Russians would do to them, or they just didn't want to be caught in the crossfire, whatever. A whole bunch of them wanted to get out of there, and most of them wanted to travel over to Ukrainian-held territory. The Russians wouldn't allow them to do that. The Russians only allowed refugees in the territory they controlled to travel on roads that either led to Russia or Russia's ally, Belarus. When civilians try to flee to territory still held by the Ukrainian government, those roads were bombed. You'd have these gigantic columns of refugees, men, women, and children, completely unarmed, posing no threat, militarily speaking, of any sort, and they just get torn apart by artillery. This is a bold-faced atrocity. There is no justification for this. And just to make it clear that this is a deliberate policy done by the Russians, this isn't just a mistake or incompetence, the kind of stuff that gets innocent people killed by mistake, the Russians would sometimes tell these people trying to flee to territory still held by the Ukrainian government, they would tell these people, okay, we've made a deal with the Ukrainians, that it is safe for you to travel on this road. So they would make sure that the roads were full of people trying to flee when they started bombing. They would tell these people, it's safe for you to travel this way if you want to, and then the bombing starts while these people are all on the road. You have Russian artillery units would suddenly get orders, okay, things have changed, the deal's off, start bombing. And you'd have just unbelievable carnage on those roads. It's awful. There's no other word for it. The point wasn't just to massacre a bunch of refugees, although God knows there have been certainly tons and tons of massacres of Ukrainian civilians committed by Russian troops. The main goal, at least of bombing these refugee columns, was to disincentivize people held in Russian-occupied territory from trying to leave and go over to territory still held by the Ukrainian government. In short, this is terrorism. State terrorism. So after this had happened a bunch of times, even when the Russian occupiers announced, okay, it's safe for you to travel on this road now, people were obviously too scared to do so, for damn good reason. Now I also mentioned the mass abduction of Ukrainians and the, the forced population transfer. It's the kind of thing that you used to see in like the early days of the Soviet Union, back when like Stalin would exile all the Chechens over into Siberia, and then eventually they were allowed to come back after Stalin died and his successor undid his policies. It's an old-fashioned form of population control. It's almost a Russian specialty, basically. So 900,000 Ukrainians have been forcibly moved back into Russia. And it's not as simple as them being like put on trains and taken to Russia. Before they go to Russia, they get taken to these places. The Russians call them filtration camps. They're basically concentration camps. These Ukrainians, these men, women, and children, they get put in literal concentration camps. 
And while they're in these camps, they get extensively interrogated about their political and ideological affiliations. If they are deemed acceptable by the Russian authorities, they are moved over to Russia and, quote-unquote, given Russian citizenship. Now, keep in mind, these are people who have lived in Ukraine for decades, if not their entire lives. Yes, some of these people may be old enough to remember a time when Ukraine and Russia were under the same government, the Soviet Union, but that was decades ago. Ukraine has been an independent country for decades. These Ukrainians chose to live in Ukraine instead of Russia for the most part, and they were forcibly moved to Russia. If these people had wanted to move to Russia and become Russian citizens, they probably would have done so of their own free will a long time ago. These Ukrainians, at least the vast majority of them, did not choose to move to Russia, plain and simple. But these were the lucky ones. These were the lucky ones who made it out of the filtration camps alive. Those who were deemed unacceptable by the Russians for whatever reason, if they were just too adamant about their Ukrainian identity and no, they don't want to move to Russia, if they were too openly pro-Zelensky, for example, they died. They were killed. They were shot dead and dumped in a mass grave. Actually, that's if they were lucky. The unlucky ones were tortured before they were killed. So with all this in mind, you can probably understand why 7.9 million Ukrainians decided to get as far away from Russia as possible and flee to Poland. Poland and other European Union member states have opened their doors to Ukrainian refugees. Well, okay, specifically Ukrainian citizens. Non-Ukrainian citizens who happened to be in the country at the time of the invasion, people like immigrants or international students, people from Africa or parts of Asia, for example. A lot of these people have reported discrimination and other forms of abuse at the Polish border. And there have also been allegations that Ukrainian citizens of Roma ancestry have also been treated pretty badly. I mean, look, this is bad, full stop. That being said, it's also not very surprising considering how Poland and several other Eastern European countries have treated non-European migrants, like Syrian refugees, for example. These are, by and large, countries that refused to take in Syrian refugees and then went out of their way to make life as miserable as possible for Syrians and other refugees passing through their country, literally on foot in most cases, passing through their country on their way to places like Germany. A lot of commentators have noted the uh, very different attitude these countries have shown to people whose complexion and culture is much closer to theirs. But by and large, I haven't really seen Syrians themselves making this point. In, in fact, pro-opposition Syrians, they immediately showed solidarity with Ukraine pretty much from the moment the invasion began. Now keep in mind, I am talking about Free Syria specifically, which I define Free Syria as basically a nation in exile. If we're talking about, say, pro-Assad Syrians, yeah, of course they're cheering on the Russians. Cheering on the indiscriminate bombardment and brutalization of civilians is basically on brand for them. Pro-opposition Syrians immediately started sharing posts and videos from Ukraine, expressing sympathy and solidarity with the Ukrainians suffering at the hands of the Russian government. And in large part, this is because Syrians, for years, were on the receiving end of brutality committed, or at least enabled, by the Russian government. When the rest of the world wanted to look away because everyone assumed 
that Ukraine was going to fall within a matter of days, pro-opposition Syrians were the ones who refused to look away and told the rest of the world, don't ignore this. They've been rooting for Zelensky and the Ukrainian government basically from day one of this conflict, and it has been cathartic as hell for them to watch the Russians get pushed out of that country. It's given a lot of Syrians who lost hope years ago, it's given a lot of these people hope that maybe something similar could happen in Syria. Maybe if Putin falls and the Russian troops get withdrawn from Syria, maybe then there is a chance Bashar al-Assad could finally be toppled. Also, I am far from the first person to point out the atrocities committed by Russia in Ukraine are almost identical to those that the Russians have committed in previous conflicts, especially in Syria. Deliberate bombing of civilians, double-tap airstrikes targeting first responders, destruction of infrastructure, attempting to starve people to death, or make them die of thirst if they won't surrender. If you were surprised by what's happened in Ukraine, you weren't paying attention to what happened in Syria, Chechnya, and other places. To help you picture this, I'm going to quote now an article written by Oz Katerji for New Lines magazine. This article is titled, Erpin's Bridge of Death. Quote, As women, children, the elderly, and the infirm continue to pour out of Erpin, the difference between the two parties of this conflict could not be clearer. Ukrainian soldiers, territorial defense volunteers, and paramedics work throughout the day to evacuate civilians from the besieged town, while Russia bombards the fleeing population with artillery and mortar fire. The bravery and insanity witnessed on that bridge in Irpin are difficult to put into words. Every few minutes, a car will reach the end of the bridge, and civilians, including disabled passengers or very small children, often those who were not able to make it out of the town before the fighting engulfed the area, jump out and start heading toward the makeshift pontoon made from wooden crates to get to safety across the Bucha River. The drivers then turn the cars around, weaving their way through dozens of abandoned vehicles, and head back across the front line to transport more victims of war. To make it across that line once is a miracle. To continue going back into that hell can only be described as selfless heroism or sheer madness. The body of a man lies on the ground, his face toward the concrete. The bicycle he was riding before he died lies mangled behind him, his cell phone out of his pocket. As the living work their way down toward the river crossings with its strong currents in freezing conditions, there is simply no time to deal with the dead. A nursery, a food warehouse, and an orthodox church. There is little civilian infrastructure in Irpin that has been spared from Russia's brutal assault. The people who are fleeing their homes face an uncertain future. They do not know if they will ever be able to go back. They do not know if there will ever be anything to go back to. Russia's objective is to break Ukrainians' resolve by targeting civilians and civilian infrastructure. It is the same model they employed in Chechnya and Syria. Unquote. 
That was Oz Katurji writing for New Lines magazine. This war and refugee crisis began at the end of last winter, and it's gone on long enough to see the beginning of a new one. These Ukrainian refugees, whatever you think about the conflict, just keep in mind that these people are suffering in the cold. In what would normally have been a time of year when families would get together to celebrate and catch up, Instead, they are now torn apart by one of the worst conflicts to break out in recent years. That is where Ukrainian refugees find themselves at the end of 2022, which will likely go down in history as not quite the worst, but certainly one of the worst. This has been a really bad year for Ukraine. The next two countries we're going to look at don't get nearly as much attention as Syria, Afghanistan, and Ukraine, but we should at least pay homage to them. We should at least mention them. In the case of the second country we're going to talk about, we don't hear about them today nearly as much as we did a few years back. They, a few years ago, that this country was in the news all the time. Now you don't hear about it so much. But before we get to that one, we're going to take a look now at South Sudan. Why South Sudan? Well, sadly, more than 2.5 million people have been forced to flee from that country, and another 1.8 million people in the country have been internally displaced by civil war as well as famine, which was exacerbated by the agricultural disruption and environmental mismanagement that is almost always associated with civil war. A country experiencing the turmoil of mass violence doesn't have very much time or resources to spend on growing crops, or regulating land management. So because of mass violence and starvation, 2.5 million South Sudanese people have fled the country, and another 1.8 million have been rendered internally displaced since 2013. A majority of South Sudanese refugees are currently located in Uganda, Ethiopia, and Kenya. South Sudan has been recognized as a sovereign state since 2011, it's currently the newest nation-state on Earth, and it's unfortunately been in a state of war for pretty much that entire time. Long-standing tribal conflicts, cutthroat political rivalries, and attempts to root out a multitude of insurgent groups who use South Sudan as a hideout, all of that preceded the outbreak of a full-scale civil war, an alleged coup attempt in December 2013. There's disagreement over whether this coup plot was ever real or not, but eventually this alleged coup attempt bled over into each of the country's many unresolved ethnic tensions and socio-political disputes. This resulted in a multi-sided civil war where attacks on civilians, up to and including genocidal mass murder and mass rape, became the norm. At least 400,000 men, women, and children were killed before a power-sharing agreement was signed in 2018 and a coalition government between previously warring parties was formed in 2020. But millions of South Sudanese people remain food insecure due to years of war and subsequent drought. There are also sporadic flare-ups of ethnic and political violence, conflicts still unresolved by the civil war's conclusion. 
One such instance saw more than 240 people murdered in a single instance in May 2020. Just one mass killing saw 240 men, women, and children murdered, massacred. All of these ongoing issues make refugees from South Sudan understandably reluctant to return home, at least in the near future. Because what's the point of returning to a country from which you were forced to flee, only to once again be forced to flee again within a few years when another war flares up, or another famine makes living there impossible? That is, if you survive that future war. So, for people who look at refugees and they're inclined to ask obnoxious questions like, well, why don't they just stay in their country and fix things? Well, would you? In these circumstances, would you stay? Would you gamble with your life and your family's life and try to fix that place? Or would you ensure the safety of your loved ones by doing everything necessary to get out? For most people, the answer is obvious. All right, the last refugee crisis we're going to talk about right now, it's very different from the others. That's not to say it's milder. It's actually one of the very worst. I'm talking about Venezuela. Since 1999, although it really picked up in 2015, 7 million Venezuelans, more than 20% of the country's population, have fled to other countries. A majority of these refugees now reside in Colombia, Chile, Peru, Brazil, Panama, Uruguay, and the United States plus Trinidad and Tobago, because that island nation is super close to Venezuela. This crisis is unique in that its primary cause wasn't warfare. Civil war or invasion by an external power, that didn't happen. Unlike all four of the other countries we talked about, Venezuela was not destroyed by a war. Instead, the main causes of emigration from Venezuela are extraordinary violent crime. At one point, the highest murder rate in Latin America, second highest in the world. I don't have time to go into the history of Venezuela, but long story short, when a new government came into power, they changed things up in law enforcement and crime skyrocketed. That's a vast overgeneralization, but that's the best I can do for you right now. So unimaginable crime rates, including murder in Venezuela, plus an economic collapse, as well as widespread shortages of food and medicine. And this is where people talk about sanctions. Look, I'm not a fan of sanctions myself, but whatever harm the sanctions have caused to people in Venezuela, the sanctions are not the root cause of the shortages. People say that it's because of the government taking control of certain industries. And there's this sort of right-wing libertarian argument you hear from people is like, oh, the government shouldn't mess with the free market at all. Well, that's also bullshit. But the problem is, if you're gonna have state control over certain aspects of the economy, especially things such as the distribution of food and medicine, things go bad really quickly if your government is super corrupt. So when you have a corrupt government take over almost the entire economy, that process gets corrupt as hell. So suddenly, people whose job on paper it is to distribute food and medicine equally, because that's what socialism is supposed to be about. Instead of doing that, they're selling their rations of food and medicine to the highest bidders. Sometimes these people, these government officials, will go abroad 
to like Colombia or some other country and take the stuff over there and sell it there. They're not supposed to do that. They're breaking their country's laws, but the regime is okay with that. The regime is fine with it because those government officials are at least loyal to President Nicolas Maduro. Maduro prioritizes loyalty over integrity. Say whatever you will about Hugo Chavez's utopian ideas and desires to help the poor, or how much of that was genuine, how much of that was just posturing. Hard to say, but the fact is, he put corrupt people in charge of that process, and those corrupt officials did not do what they were supposed to do. And thus, things didn't work out the way they were supposed to with the Bolivarian reforms. And that's what's led to these incredible scenes of deprivation, the likes of which that most people, especially in a country like the United States, just cannot imagine. Unbelievable shortages of food, medicine, and other necessities at the same time as the economy has collapsed due to, well, long story short, Venezuela is dependent upon oil, and in recent years, the price of oil has dropped precipitously. So there's your economic collapse for you, along with the shortages, plus the extraordinary high crime rate. All of that combined is a situation that the vast majority of people find just unlivable. And so that's why 7 million people, 20% of Venezuela's population, have left the country. And a lot of these people are middle-class educated professionals from occupations like law or medicine, resulting in a severe brain drain for the country. The fact is the Maduro government is racked by widespread corruption and unbelievable mismanagement. I mean, any other government, even a corrupt authoritarian government, would look at this and start firing people. But the fact is Maduro can't fire these people because he can't be sure there's anyone around to replace them who will be as loyal to him as these incompetent, corrupt officials. I'm mean, Just to be blunt with you guys, Nicolas Maduro has shown very little interest in even acknowledging, let alone addressing, the daily miseries that have motivated so many of his fellow Venezuelan citizens to leave the country. He has instead shown a single-minded focus on holding power, remaining in power, to the point of rigging elections. Dissidents are arrested by the secret police, and protesters are shot by security forces on a regular basis. I know a journalist based in Colombia who, when he accidentally strayed across the border, he got detained and accused of being a terrorist simply for being a journalist. That is how they treat journalists who aren't on the government's payroll. Complaints and criticisms of the Maduro government are immediately drowned out with accusations of conspiring with the country's enemies. But no amount of censorship or repression can hide the country's slow-moving collapse, a self-created humanitarian crisis unlike any the world has seen in this century. This has created the largest refugee crisis in the Western Hemisphere. Like, how the hell do you get a Syria or Ukraine-sized refugee crisis without even a war? It's as mind-boggling as it is tragic and depressing. Like, let's run down the numbers real quick. Go back to Syria. Let's see. 6.8 million refugees, plus 6.9 million people internally displaced. Afghanistan. 
2.2 million refugees, plus 3.5 million people internally displaced. Ukraine, 7.9 million refugees, plus 8 million internally displaced. South Sudan, 2.5 million refugees, 1.8 million internally displaced. I hope you're writing that down, because Venezuela has 7 million refugees who have left the country. 7 million. That's more than South Sudan, Afghanistan, and even Syria. Incredible. This Christmas, we wanted to once again ask you, the listener, to think about the 13 million Syrians who have lost their homes over the last decade, half of whom have fled the country, and the other half remain displaced within it. And to also consider, think about, maybe even pray for, if you're religious, for the other 20 million people across the world who have been forced to flee their countries due to violence, oppression, and starvation, the vast majority of whom happen to come from Afghanistan, Ukraine, South Sudan, Venezuela, and, of course, Syria. At the time of this recording, the estimated number of refugees across the world stands at 36 million people, around half of whom happen to be under the age of 18. So you got about 18 million children across the world growing up in this situation. And that's only a fraction of the world's forcibly displaced population. The combined total of transnational refugees and internally displaced people stands at more than 100 million people. 100 million men, women, and children forced to flee from their homes, give up their dreams, aspirations, and belongings in order to avoid certain death. So the next time you hear some jerk complaining about refugees, demonizing him, basically using the word refugee as a slur, keep in mind that those 36 million people, including 18 million children, wouldn't have bothered to journey across the world and settle in a new country if they didn't have a damn good reason. The issues of refugees is, you know, is, is constant in different places around the world at different times. And I think it's important that it's an issue that people continue to care about. Unfortunately, it's a situation that has been happening quite a lot, especially in the past few years. It's very easy to have a bit of crisis fatigue. Wait on the boat! We're coming! Wait! Take the baby, please. كنا ماشيين اختلت توازن صارت البلاد توقع بين الاجرين والنسوان توقع بين الاجرين تعبى البلم مي كله وقف البلم عطل البلم قعدنا نصفر والنادي وبعثنا المواقع على الواتساب للخطر اليوناني واجى انقذنا This is your family? Yeah, this is my family. If you want, you can come with us. You know what? Those are my people and I am from them. I will work like them. Okay. It's okay. Okay. We will work, and uh, what will happen? What will happen to them will happen to me. It's okay. Uh, okay. I'm just for... worried about the children. Yeah. There are so many children. I know. My children not uh, yeah. better like uh, than those children. There are so many good people. This was the scene at Kabul airport a year ago. 
people massed together, trying to get on any plane that would take them. Thousands got out, many more were left behind, splitting up families and leaving their loved ones in Afghanistan at risk. What do you pack in your backpack to leave your homeland forever? I packed two dresses for me, other than what I had on, and uh, two for my husband. One backpack for both of you? Yeah. Shocking scenes of desperation and chaos in Afghanistan are being seen around the world. Can't believe my eyes, says the man who shot this video of people clinging to an American cargo jet as it takes off. Machine gun fire could be heard as thousands of panic-stricken Afghans storm the airport. They battled their way onto civilian planes, which took off with hundreds of passengers jammed inside. One air traffic controller marveled as a pilot ferried 800 people to Dubai in a plane designed for 150. When South Sudan's civil war broke out in 2013, it quickly became fueled by tribal divisions. President Salva Kiir of the Dinka tribe pitted against his vice president Riyak Mashar from the Nuer tribe. Dinka government soldiers have been fighting rebels led mostly by the Nuer tribe all across the country. Both sides are accused of taking part in war crimes. It's a maze of makeshift tents. This one of the UN compounds in Juba transformed into a teeming town for refugees. Children have just started to receive polio and measles immunizations. Concerns are rising about the spread of other diseases. And aid agencies that sent out their non-essential staff are struggling to cope with the overwhelming needs. When we were speaking, you said that your brother went to get water and then you never saw him again. What happened? My brother went back to the house to collect water. I was given a call with his phone. And that correspond, uh, is they tell me that your brother is dead. When I got off the bus, they grabbed me and took me to a small house by the side of the road. Then 10 of them raped me. Linda, not her real name, was kidnapped, beaten and raped last year by government soldiers on the streets of South Sudan's capital, Juba. Were they wearing uniforms? Yes. All of them? Yes. Were they carrying weapons? Yes. At first, they told us they were going to shoot us and kill us, so we were afraid. Then they beat us and raped us. She was taken with six other women. Two of them were never seen again. For weeks, they have crossed borders, in cars, buses, so many on foot, to escape a brutal and indiscriminate Russian assault. The UN says 2.5 million have fled so far, the majority crossing into Poland, most women and children. Where have you come from in Ukraine? Uh, Kharkiv. From Kharkiv? Mm -hmm. Yes. So, so very bad fighting in Kharkiv? Yeah, very bad. How long have you been traveling? How many days? Two days. Two days? Yes. Very cold. Yulia Kirienko and her sons fled Kiev, her husband staying to fight. Children were killed and teenage girls were raped. We had to leave. They were shooting at the cars as we tried to escape. We prayed as we drove. It's good here, but we want to go home. I just want this to end. The trauma on the youngest could take years to show and last a lifetime. 
Olga Oleshko's little ones already feel it. They were asking why helicopters were flying, why there were sirens, why people were dying. I had to explain it in a way that didn't hurt them. Millions of Venezuelans have fled the surrounding countries in South and Central America. It is a refugee crisis that the United Nations warns could soon equal the one ongoing in the Mediterranean. For millions of Venezuelans, the line between starvation and survival is the border with Peru. Refugees bring only what they can carry, along with their entire families, fleeing their homeland. On the Ecuadorian border, refugees take over a highway. They've been walking for hundreds of miles and hope to escape a life that has become unbearable. And on the Brazilian border, little girls carry what's most valuable. Families at the border wait for their turn, wait for what they hope is a better life. I came here to work and help my family because you can't back there. Security forces in Guatemala blocking a bridge. Those on the receiving end of the tear gas and pepper spray are migrants, many of them from Venezuela. This incident took place over the Motagua River, a natural border between Guatemala and Honduras. We just want to reach our destination. These people here will not stop until they reach their goal to achieve a dream that all of us who are walking want to attain. If we need to walk all day and night until we reach the end, we will do it. This girl's sign reads, I crossed the jungle and they won't let me see my dad. She and others like her are stranded after U.S. and Mexican authorities announced a new policy that would expel Venezuelans entering the U.S. land border back to Mexico. The move follows an acceleration in the number of Venezuelan migrants trying to reach the U.S. Between October last year and August, more than 150,000 Venezuelans were apprehended at the U.S.-Mexico border. Venezuelans now account for roughly half of all migrants traveling through Latin America. And more than 7 million are estimated to be living as migrants and refugees. The UN has sounded a warning that shelters are being overwhelmed, leaving families without places to stay. Lastly, I want to say a little bit about the show's Patreon feed. Look, I know there's a reason why there's only two patrons on there. I haven't put out nearly enough content. I haven't promoted the Patreon nearly enough, nearly as much as I should have. That's all on me, but for real. We're going to start putting a hell of a lot more time and effort putting stuff exclusively up on Patreon. Not only episodes, not even only early released episodes, although they will be up there. I'm also talking about things like videos. Yes, videos. I know I've been talking about them forever. I remember back when a bunch of travel vloggers like bald and bankrupt were traveling to Assad-held Syria. Back then I made a bold announcement that I will make a video debunking this and then I never did it. Yeah, you're right. I failed. I failed to keep that promise, but I am going to keep it. I am going to make that video and other videos and those videos will be exclusive to Patreon. I might put a few up on our YouTube channel, but Two things. Number one, these videos are going to take up a lot more time and effort. I'm more inclined to give them only to paying customers. If I do put out some free samples on YouTube, YouTube takes for fucking ever to put videos up. 
the amount of time it takes to upload a podcast on a podcast app versus the amount of time it takes to upload a video on YouTube, it's night and day. I've only got one laptop right now. Until I start making more money on Patreon, I cannot afford to put out video as often as I put out podcasts. So yeah, we're going to have videos. You're going to get early released episodes before anyone else. And there's also going to be more and more bonus interviews with some awesome guests, mostly people from Syria, as well as academics and journalists. Again, I don't hold it against anyone who has listened to this show for not signing up on Patreon. I really haven't given you any good reason to do so until now. So that's on me. I take responsibility for that. I take responsibility for the fact that I have not put out stuff on Patreon the way that I promised, and thus everybody saw that, and nobody, with the exception of a couple generous souls, nobody wanted to spend money on that. I completely understand. So going forward, I will start putting out more and more content exclusively on Patreon, more and more types of content, and give you more and more reasons to eventually subscribe for $1 or $3 or $5, whatever you want to do. If you enjoy listening to this show, if you have missed this show this year during this really long, unplanned hiatus, the very best thing you could do to help me create more content going forward, bring you more content, not only more quickly, but also more often, the best thing you could do would be to sign up for whatever amount you could give on What Happened to Syria's Patreon feed. I'll post a link in the description of this episode. I mean, you can just go on Patreon and just type in what happened to Syria, question mark, or Sean Hastings, probably. That is the best thing you could do to help me make this show. I do this podcast as a labor of love. I love this topic, and I'm passionate about debunking propaganda and just giving people the facts and context they really need to understand what has happened in Syria since 2011. I love doing this, but the fact is I'm also a grown man with expenses. So my intention was to never get rich and cash out when I started this podcast, but the fact is I gotta make money somehow. And the amount of time and energy that I spend doing a real job and earning an income, that is time and energy I could have spent working on this podcast and putting out more content. So if we could really grow the Patreon feed this coming year, 2023, that would help me a lot in a couple different ways. First, at the very least, it could help provide more funding for this show. That is money that I could spend on either paying people to edit episodes or to purchase new equipment like another laptop. If I had a second laptop, I could upload videos on that laptop while using my primary laptop for recording content and so on and so forth. There's a bunch of different ways that a consistent revenue stream would help at least fund this podcast. That way I wouldn't be at least paying for it out of my own pocket, which I have done that without complaint for three years at this point since I started developing this podcast back in 2019. Okay, admittedly, it hasn't entirely been out of my own pocket. I've also had generous parents who have helped pay for a lot of stuff, including a lot of the books that I use in the show, as well as the Yeti microphone that I'm speaking into. Thank you, Mom. Thank you, Dad. I love you. Couldn't have done this without you. But I want to stop leeching off of y'all and start being independent. So that's the whole point of promoting the Patreon to at least get an independent source of funding for the show. At the very least, that's what we could accomplish if we grow the Patreon to a certain extent. A loftier goal, one that's probably less feasible, but not impossible. I think we could pull it off if we get enough paying subscribers. A loftier goal for the Patreon would be to eventually turn this podcast into a full-time job for me, to eventually turn this into a business with which I could cover not only the expenses of doing this show, but also the expenses of my daily life. Thus, I wouldn't need to spend time and energy doing a real job or even a part-time job. 
if you and others who enjoy listening to this show could sign up on Patreon and encourage other people to sign up on Patreon. If we get enough people signing up on Patreon, even for like $1 or $3, if we get enough of those people, I could do this full time and thus get episodes out to you a lot quicker, a lot more consistently. Again, I'm not asking you to just give me money for free. I'm not trying to get rich here. I'm not trying to exploit the suffering of people from Syria for my own benefit. I'm trying to get to a point where I can do this show for the same reasons I've always wanted to, but I also have to be able to cover my own expenses. The most important lesson I've learned while doing this podcast is that any podcast is basically a part-time job. So you either need a full-time job with flexible hours and a good salary in order to keep doing that podcast, or you have to, out of necessity, start making some money for the time and effort that you put in to what is essentially a part-time job. So going forward, 2023, we're going to put out a lot more stuff on Patreon. The following month, January, we're going to have new episodes out every week. This is going to be episode 15 broken up into multiple episodes because it's so damn long. Eventually, at the end of January, the full episode 15 will be released. And then we finally arrive at the season finale, the Assad family and regime part two. We're going to release parts of it throughout February to commemorate the Hama massacre. Eventually, the full episode will be put out by the end of the month. Quick note, I have recorded episode 15 already. I have not yet finished recording episode 16, so I hope that I don't end up eating the words that I just spoke into this microphone. Thank you for listening to What Happened to Syria, a podcast about the country, the people, and their impact on the wider world since 2011. Follow us on Twitter, at SyriaPod, so you can stay up to date with future episodes. You can email us at whathappentosyriapodcast at gmail.com. We encourage anyone to reach out to us. If you think we got a detail wrong, or if you have information relevant to the topics we discuss. If you are Syrian, part of the Syrian diaspora, or have otherwise been personally affected by events in Syria since 2011, please reach out to us. We'd love to have you on the show. If you happen to be a refugee, or you know someone who's a refugee, or you work with refugees, wherever you or they come from, please reach out to us. We'd love to hear your perspective as well. This is basically going to be a Christmas tradition for us, looking at uh, the state of refugees in the world and otherwise focusing on refugees. I do this basically just because of the Christmas spirit. If you like what you heard and you want to support future episodes, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash what happened to Syria to support us for as little as $1 a month. You can access bonus episodes for just $3 a month and join our Discord server for $5. You can also get fan-requested content and a shout-out in each episode when you join as a VIP patron for $20. Like I said earlier in the episode, we're going to get the Patreon off the ground. We're going to do a lot more with it and hopefully get a lot more subscribers on there very soon. Thank you to all of our listeners. I'm Sean Hastings, the creator and host of What Happened to Syria. You'll hear a lot more from us very soon. <laughs> Thank you.